0: Sound listeners, what is up? My name is Ashley, and with me always is Ricky. Hey, guys. Today, we have an interesting case that has just recently resurfaced. In early 2003, the media and tabloids were all about one couple, Scott and Lacey Peterson. On Christmas Eve 2002, Lacey, who was seven and a half months pregnant with the couple's first child, Went missing. From the very beginning, police and the public were quick to suspect Lacey's husband, Scott. Convicted with little tangible evidence, Scott's behaviors after Lacey's disappearance and his secrets led many to suspect him of this terrible crime. As the investigation began to unfold, the public was captivated by what could have gone wrong for this young, beautiful, and seemingly happy couple, Lacey Peterson, born Lacey Rocha, was a classic all-American girl. Born in 1975, she was raised on a small dairy farm until her parents' divorce, where she relocated to Modesto, California. She loved the outdoors from a young age and would spend time working on her parents' farm or in a garden. She was outgoing, full of joy, and deeply loved by her family. She was a cheerleader at her high school, often the center of attention at parties, and had a close circle of friends. In 1993, Lacey enrolled in California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo, where she put her love of nature to use to receive a degree in ornamental horticulture. While living in Morro Bay for college, she would often frequently visit a restaurant called the Pacific Cafe, where her neighbor worked. It was there that she met Scott Peterson, a waiter who was only a few years older than her. Lacey, ever bold and confident, gave him her number on a whim. Her mom remembers her daughter calling to tell her that she had met the man that she was going to marry, and this was all before they even got on their first date. Scott Peterson was the youngest of five boys and grew up in San Diego. He went to Arizona State University on a partial golf scholarship, but left only after a semester to move back in with his parents, who were now living in Morro Bay. To the Peterson family, their son was Mr. Perfect, a top golfer, an overachiever in his classes, and a natural leader. After leaving ASU, Scott enrolled in California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. He told his father that he was trading in the dream of beamers and drinking martinis for pickup trucks and drinking beers with a degree in agriculture. At his new school, his professors found him to be a model student. When Lacey gave Scott her number while he was working a shift at the restaurant, he was just as smitten as she was. Scott and Lacey moved in together during her last year at Cal Poly, and they were married two years after being together in 1997. Their ceremony was at Sycamore Mineral Springs Resort, with 150 of their family and friends present. To those on the outside, they seemed like the perfect couple, both deeply committed and in love with each other. After Scott's graduation from Cal Poly, the newlywed Petersons opened a burger restaurant called The Shack. It was located in San Luis Obispo. With Lacey's eye for design and the ability to create a welcoming environment for everyone she met, paired with Scott's entrepreneurial spirit, their business slowly began to take off. Despite having close friends and Scott's family nearby, the young couple just could not afford the rising house rates in the popular city, and they wanted to start growing a family. So the Petersons decided to sell their restaurant, and they moved to Modesto, where Lacey's parents lived and where she had grown up. They bought a home in an affluent neighborhood in Modesto in late 2000. Scott got a job with a growing fertilizer company where he earned enough to support him and his wife. While Lacey would also substitute teach, she also was the picture-perfect housewife. She hosted parties, built a welcoming home, and became close again with the friends she had in high school who still lived in the area. In June of 2002, the Petersons found out that Lacey was pregnant with their first child a baby boy. Overjoyed, they decided they would name him Connor, painted the nursery blue with the nautical theme and attended Lamaze classes together. Connor's due date was February 10, 2003. The week before Christmas in December of 2002, Lacey and Scott spent a three-day weekend with his parents in Carmel, California. Lacey was nearly eight months pregnant. This was the last time that they would ever see their daughter-in-law alive. On December 23rd, Lacey and Scott stopped by her half-sister Amy's salon so that Scott could get a haircut. They chatted up like normal, Scott even offering to pick up a package for Amy that was on his way to a golf course where he was playing the next day. After they got home for the day, Lacey called her mom on the phone, but they only talked for a few minutes, as her mother had another call come in. And Lacey was sounding and feeling very tired. The next day, on Christmas Eve, Amy received a call that her package had not been picked up, like Scott had promised. At 5.15pm, Scott called her in a panic, asking if she has seen Lacey. Amy told him that she hasn't seen her, and he proceeded to call other friends and family. He called Lacey's mother and stepfather and told them that their daughter was missing. It was Lacey's stepfather that finally called the police on the night of Christmas Eve. On December 24th, Scott Peterson told the police that he last saw his wife around 9.30 in the morning, watching television, mopping the floor, and preparing to take the dogs out for a walk. Despite having told Amy and others that he was going to go golfing, Scott had changed his plans that day and decided to head up to the Berkeley Marina to go fishing in a small aluminum boat he had recently purchased. When Scott returned home from the marina, he found the house was empty, though Lacey's car was still in the driveway. Rather than looking for her immediately, he had a snack and took a shower, claiming that he had gotten wet while fishing. When police came to search the family's home for clues on Lacey's whereabouts, they found her keys, wallet, and purse, all in their place in the closet. The table was set for what looked like a big family Christmas dinner. Open on the counter was a phone book turned to a page for defense lawyers. There was also a strong smell of bleach, which Scott suggested was from their house cleaner who had been there yesterday. The investigators were surprised by Scott's bizarrely calm demeanor. He wasn't panicked, didn't ask too many questions, and didn't seem emotional that his partner of the last five years had vanished from their home. While his behavior struck police as suspicious... There was no evidence that incriminated Scott. It's not surprising that Lacey's case soon caught national attention. She was young, beautiful, pregnant, and had what seemed to be the perfect life. The Modesto News dedicated much of their news cycle to the search for Lacey and her unborn son. Volunteers came out to help look for her in nearby neighborhoods and areas, A candlelight vigil was held on December 31st, and while Lacey's parents and siblings cried as they spoke, the media and people in attendance began to question Scott's aloof and even kneeled attitude. At the vigil, while his family sobbed and pleaded for Lacey's safe return, he was photographed smiling and laughing. While Lacey's parents initially defended their son-in-law and claimed his innocence, the world that was watching began to focus their attention on Scott. He was the always picture-perfect husband, handsome and charming, But he did not seem to be grieving or concerned like everyone else. Some justified this behavior as someone coping with a truly traumatic situation, while others like the television journalist Nancy Grace scrutinized his every move. Reporters camped out in front of their house for any glimpse of him, and rumors began to spread about what could have happened to Lacey. For those that were convinced of Scott's innocence, a theory began to circulate that she had been abducted by a satanic cult and murdered, though no evidence ever arose to support this idea either. The reward for any information about Lacey and Connor started at $25,000 and was later up to $250,000 and then $500,000. Investigators searched the park nearby where Lacey would walk the dog, thinking that perhaps this was where she had gone missing from. A few witnesses thought that they had seen Lacey walking the dog that morning, but nothing turned up. Over 1,500 volunteers came to canvas nearby areas, hang posters, and help. In their search.
1: With Lacey's disappearance now being national news, a woman named Amber Frey calls the tip line after seeing the story in the local newspaper towards the end of December. She tells the police that she's had an affair with Scott Peterson. Though Scott had denied claims of extramarital relationships in the initial investigations, police were inclined to believe Amber. She shared that the two had met on November 20th, 2002, through a mutual friend and had begun a sexual relationship. Scott had told her that he was single and he kept up this carefully crafted lie for weeks. When Amber found out that he was married on December 9th, she recalls that he told her his wife had recently died and that he was upset about it being the first holiday he'd spend without her. He told Amber that it was too painful for him to talk about and she believed him. At this point, though, Lacey was still very much alive. That is until she saw the news reports. Amber, having been cleared as a suspect, began to work with the police, allowing them to record her phone calls with Scott. Unaware that Amber had gone to the police, Scott had told her that he was planning to leave for Paris, France and he gave her a fake European phone number that rerouted calls back to his cell phone. On the night of the candlelight vigil for Lacey, Scott called Amber and told her he was out at a New Year's Eve party in Paris with his friends Pasquale and Francois. It hasn't even been 10 days since his wife went missing and he's calling his mistress pretending to be in Paris at a party. He also called her on Christmas Day, the first day without his wife. In total, Amber provided over 29 hours of recorded conversations. In late January, Amber made her involvement with the police and the investigation public. Scott claimed that Lacey knew about the affair the entire time. He flip-flopped between claims that she was okay with it and that their marriage would withstand his infidelity. These lies and callous behaviors are what ultimately began to turn the public against Scott. With the evidence of Scott's affair becoming clear, the police feel they have a motive and become more sure that Scott was involved in Lacey's disappearance. But still, without a body or concrete evidence, they couldn't move to arrest
0: Scott. For over four months, the search continued until on April 13th, 2003, a couple out walking their dog in the Berkeley Marina made a horrific and heartbreaking discovery. The body of a small baby boy had washed ashore. The baby's umbilical cord had been ripped There were significant mutilation on one side of its body, and nylon tape had been wrapped around its neck. As if it could not get worse, the very next day, only a mile from where the baby boy was found, the body of a woman was discovered in a rocky area of the marina. Her body was deeply decayed from being in the water and the head and limbs were missing. With DNA evidence, investigators were able to confirm that this was the body of Lacey Peterson and the deceased baby boy was her unborn son, Connor. The doctor that performed their autopsy said Lacey's uterus had actually protected Connor's body from decomposing after her death and that it was only her decay that had caused the body to leave her uterus and wash ashore. The doctor found a few broken ribs on Lacey but could not determine a cause of death for Lacey. As for Connor, the coroner ruled that he had died as a result of Lacey's death, meaning that Lacey never gave birth to Connor. Even after the coroner ruled that the baby was never born, many people still wondered about the tape that was found wrapped around his neck. Some believe this could have been a piece of ocean debris, like a plastic bag or some type of plastic twine, where some believe that maybe the killer had something to do with it. With Lacey and Connor's bodies being found right in the area where Scott Peterson had said he was fishing on Christmas Eve, police finally believed that they had enough evidence to accuse Scott. On April 18th, officials moved in to arrest Scott on two accounts of premeditated murder, One for Lacey and one for their unborn child. Because they were already suspicious of him, the head detectives had put a tracker on Scott's car out of fear that he would flee from the US. Using this, he was found in San Diego and pulled over while driving near a golf course. Scott only continued to look more suspicious given the circumstances of his arrest. His usual dark hair was dyed blonde and he had grown a beard. And in his car, he had his brother's driver's license, which he claimed he used to get into the golf course. When searching Scott's car, investigators found it full of unusual items, camping supplies, several changes of clothes, four cell phones, and 12 Viagra pills. Most notably, they found $15,000 in cash. Scott's parents tried to explain that all of this was being kept in his car because of the media attention that Scott was trying to avoid. But why would he need so much money in cash? For police, this was evidence that Scott was attempting to flee to Mexico and he was arrested on the same day. During the trial for the murder of his wife and child, media attention never wavered. People around the country were following the case and the dramatic revelations. Everyone had thought the Petersons were the ideal, happy married couple. Scott was handsome and looked put together, not someone most would suspect to be a killer. The fact that Lacey was nearly eight months pregnant at the time of her death added to the shock people felt when hearing about this case. Given Scott's behaviors around the time of his wife's disappearance, most people were suspicious of him from the very beginning. But strange behavior wasn't enough to convict Scott alone. After all, is there any correct way to handle such a tragedy? During the trial, the defense argued that the prosecution did not have much forensic evidence to support their theory. Although there was not much physical evidence, a few key pieces around the Berkeley Marina ultimately led the jury to convict Scott Peterson. On Scott's boat, trained tracking dogs caught Lacey's scent at the marina where Scott claimed to have been fishing the day Lacey went missing. Scent tracking evidence can be unreliable, but one of Lacey's hairs was also found on a pair of pliers on Scott's boat. The prosecution had argued that Lacey had never seen the boat while alive, so the only way her hair would have gotten on the boat is if Scott used the boat to transport Lacey's body. There were even a few pots that were found both in Scott's storage unit and at the marina. The theory was that Scott had attempted to weigh down Lacey's body with these pots. For most, the strongest piece of evidence pointing to Scott's guilt was the revelation of his affair with Amber Frey. The evidence also rose that Scott had at least two other affairs before he began his relationship with Amber. Prosecutors painted the picture that Scott wanted to be freed from the commitment of marriage and being a father. This illustrated Scott's motive for committing the crime and was an important part of the prosecution's case. And additionally, Scott's crimes were suggested to have been premeditated as he had purchased the aluminum boat on the same day that he told Amber that his wife was dead. During the trial, both Lacey's and Scott's family testified, while the Petersons maintained their son's innocence, Lacey's family did not. They pushed for the death penalty for their former son-in-law. On November 3rd, 2004, the jury began their deliberations and nine days later, Scott Peterson was found guilty of first-degree murder for Lacey's death and second-degree murder for Connor's death. The following month, nearly two years after Lacey was first reported missing, the jury formally decided to recommend the death penalty for Scott's crimes. Given that there was little tangible evidence to connect Scott to Lacey's disappearance and death, there has always been some questions of innocence, especially for Scott's family. Many years after the initial trial, Lacey's sister, Jannie, appeared on Dr. Phil to explain why she thought Scott was actually innocent. She argued that shoddy police worked and assumed guilt based on Scott's behavior led to his arrest. She claimed that there are multiple witnesses that saw Lacey walking their dog, Mackenzie. The mailman at the time signed an affidavit that on the day of their disappearance, Mackenzie didn't bark when he came by as she usually did when she was home, suggesting that Lacey was in fact out walking the dog after Scott had already left to go fishing. Fundamental to Scott Peterson's case is the media coverage and the public's perception of his attitude and behaviors. Some argue that Scott was convicted primarily because of what people call demeanor evidence. Jurors in the trial have supported this, stating that the evidence that most led to the conviction was his remorseless appearance and attitude. Some clinical studies have shown that people on average are about 54% accurate at judging whether someone is telling the truth or not based on their demeanor. The things we often think about being associated with guilt, like not looking at someone in the eye or appearing unemotional, are not foolproof in finding the truth. But it's hard to believe that someone innocent and concerned for his wife could pretend to be at a New Year's Eve party in Paris with his secret girlfriend while actually attending a vigil for his missing wife. But even this is not concrete proof of guilt. It is a difficult job sorting out your emotional responses to hearing about Scott's actions from the unbiased evidence. Other cases like Scott's have come up over time where suspects who appeared to act bizarrely were later exonerated with conclusive DNA evidence. For example, in a case similar to the Petersons, Michael Morton was accused of killing his wife. He spent 25 years in prison, but was later found to be innocent. Part of the evidence against Morton was that he cut down all of his wife's flowers in the morning of her funeral and continued to sleep on the same mattress where his wife was murdered. To the public and to the police, it seemed impossible to think someone could act so cold after suffering such a loss, unless they had something to do with it. But in fact, these judgments by the public and more importantly, by the jurors, could send someone to jail or sentence someone to death who actually may be innocent. Scott Peterson continues to maintain his innocence to this day, though many aren't convinced, including Lacey's family, given how few facts and evidence we have about what really happened on that Christmas Eve nearly 20 years ago, and how much the media played a role in the public opinions of his actions. This raises important questions about how we determine someone's guilt and how difficult these decisions can be.
1: For the last 17 years, Scott Peterson has been on death row at San Quentin State Prison. In 2012, his family filed an appeal for his case, citing issues in how jurors were chosen. According to the appeal, jurors who were against a death penalty were dismissed, stacking the jury in a way that would favor this punishment. Just a few weeks ago, on August 24th of 2020, California's Supreme Court finally heard his appeal and voted to overturn Scott Peterson's death sentence. The court stated, while a court may dismiss a prospective juror as unqualified to sit on a capital case, if the juror's views on capital punishment would substantially impair his or her ability to follow the law, a juror may not be dismissed merely because he or she expressed opposition to the death penalty as a general matter. Essentially, the appeal argued that the jury was chosen in such a way that they were unfairly biased towards returning a death penalty recommendation. Though this means Scott is off of death row for now, there will be additional proceedings to determine the new sentencing. While he may no longer be facing the death penalty, his conviction for Lacey and Connor's murder stands.
0: From this terrible crime, a new law was enacted, the Unborn Victims of Violence Act of 2004 also called Lacey and Connors Law, recognize the unborn baby as a legal victim if they are injured or killed during a violent federal crime. Both Lacey and Connor were treated as individual victims rather than only Lacey. These fetal homicide laws allow justice for both the loss of the mother and her unborn child. And it's part of the reason Scott Peterson received such a steep punishment for his conviction. There's no denying that this case captivated the nation. The tragic murder of Lacey Peterson and her unborn child is still referenced and talked about to this day. Their story was made into television movies and documentaries. Lacey's mother wrote a New York Times best-selling novel about her daughter. Amber Frey even wrote a book of her own, detailing her portrayal by the media. The resurgence of attention in the past few weeks for Scott's appeal tell us that even though it's been nearly 20 years since the murder took place, the nation hasn't forgotten or stopped grieving for Lacey and Connor Peterson. Although this concludes this week's episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening and tell a friend about Crime Salad. We'll see you next time.
1: Are you kidding me? That was perfect. All the blood, blood, all the pain, pain, all the blood, blood,